Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroh, Trusted Authority in Executive and Transactional Liability and President of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Group of Brokers. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Samantha Ori, founder and general partner of Ouroboros Group. Ouroboros Group is a private investment firm specializing in middle market acquisitions and operations within the healthcare, consumer, manufacturing, and distribution spaces. The firm has offices in Boston and New York, and in addition to their middle market buyout practice, also has a minority investment arm specializing in early stage and minority investments within the consumer vertical. And as of this recording today, there are over 5,000 private equity firms in the U.S. Most people outside of m think of private equity as a monolithic. Even within mergers and acquisitions, a lot of professionals think of private equity by either size, sector, or region. I got to tell you that that's contrary to the truth, really, and, and it's no better personified by Samantha today, is that when you see one private equity firm, you've seen one private equity firm. Their owners and founders are unique and have a great story. And this is why I wanted to do the podcast, quite frankly, is because nobody tells these stories better. And I'm really thrilled to have you. Sam, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining me. Patrick, thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. This is exciting. <laughs> right. it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a lot of fun because there's a lot, there's a lot to get into to what you and Ouroboros Group are doing. But before we get into all of that, let's just set the table real quick. Let's talk about you. What got you to this point in your career? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think that um, going through a lot of different events um, within the financial industry and also just kind of being molded in a very non-conventional way to, to begin with. Um, so uh, many people don't know this about me, but I actually didn't start in finance. Um, I started in art. Um, and believe it or not, um, as the painting suggests behind you, um, I actually used to do that. I was one of the people that, you know, would go take six hour drawing courses and, um, paint in, in various mediums, pastels, oils, uh, do photography and, and just really be kind of that creative uh, talent. Um, and my path was much more towards going to a Pixar or a Google or even an Apple, but more kind of a design or a tech track. And, you know, it, it was probably halfway through my undergraduate degree at Parsons that I realized um, that it was more of a hobby, but less of something that I wanted to pursue in a work capacity. And I had been doing all of these internships and um, my, my last job uh, prior to, to, to exiting um, the, the school world was Prada. And I was actually a buyer for um, for uh, Prada um, within their shoe department at um, uh, Bloomingdale's and Saks and Bergdorf's. And I was one of their kind of account analysts that would go in and um, start to barter for the different prices and also keep track of all of the different uh, SKUs um, and, and even really uh, place the items within the showroom and, and kind of go through the curation process. I loved it, but I really liked the math behind it and I liked the finance behind it. And I like the idea of how to maximize your profits within one segment. Um, 
So I had a lot of friends who they were at NYU and they were really, really interested in kind of your typical iBanking track, right? Think Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley. So they got me into uh, the finance circuit. They, they said, well, if you like finance so much, why don't you give it a whirl one summer for you know your very last internship before you graduate? So I pretty much uh, begged uh, Needham and Company, uh, a middle market investment bank, to give me an internship one summer. Um, I think that they looked at me and they said, oh my goodness, um, what do you know about finance? Um, and I said, ah, not much, but I, I know something about consumer. And, you know, perhaps we can kind of strike a little bit of a happy medium here where, you know, I can help with the, the research and the consumer perspective and you can teach me how to model and teach me kind of the ropes. It was probably one of the most interesting summers of my life, um, juxtaposed between painting and drawing for my final classes and executing different uh, graphic design uh, projects and modeling for potential mergers and acquisitions that we were doing um, at Needham and Company. And um, that summer, we actually floated Zipcar as, as the tertiary underwriter. And I um, got to be a part of that, which was fantastic. It gave me something to talk about. It was an interesting bridge between consumer and between finance. And that really launched my career into finance and really created um, this viewpoint of, of how I felt, you know, finance uh, should be from, from the lens of someone who didn't have that package background. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of it all. Yeah, I, I can imagine it's just... That common denominator is the number, and the numbers speak to you. And everybody thinks of numbers on one level, and it's this cold, objective viewpoint. And, and you injected art and and context in. I was like, that that's amazing. So then you move on, you get 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 out to form Ouroboros Group from this experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, clearly you didn't name it Ori Group. Okay, you you, you put it out there. Talk, talk about now Ouroboros Group, but I always like to ask, you know, first of all, where did you come up with the name? It's it's a great question. And it's so funny you say that, actually, because everybody asks me, well, is it is it your street address or is it is it a golf course that you like to golf at? I mean, that's really where the, the manifestation of a lot of these uh, company names and, and the hedge fund and private equity world come from. And not to knock them, um, but given my uh, very creative background, I said, well, you know, I have half a branding degree, um, you know, from from one of the world's best art schools. Why don't I, you know, use that to my advantage when I'm creating my own company? Um, So I wanted to do something that resonated um, from an international perspective, uh, because I knew that we were going to be looking at deals like the outside of the country, given uh, globalization. But I also, um, you know, wanted to be kind of a talking piece um, where people would ask me. And it's a really nice icebreaker. Um, In finance, you kind of get the same conversation over and over and over again. And I find that you really get to bring out people's personality when it's just kind of a, hey, how'd you come up with your name? And then you start, you know, gabbing away. And before you know it, um, you know, you're fast friends. So it was was intentional. Um, But the name uh, being uh, close to my last name was not uh, completely unintentional. Um, So Ouroboros means infinite returns in in ancient Greek. and there are two delineations. One is um, a dragon eating its tail and the other is the serpent eating its tail, um, more of the Eastern European delineation. And I went with the Asian uh, version. Okay. I just in, Infinite returns is, is always a nice picture for people to have as they out there. And you're, you, and you're diverse in a, in a lot of the sectors that you're looking at. 
however, you're more tilted toward the middle market as opposed to the lower middle market, a lot of my guests, but you're in more of the middle market. Let's talk about that. Is what is Ouroboros Group bringing to uh, companies in that middle market space? Don't talk about you know your target size, but don't limit it to that. Just what then are you bringing because you really do have a unique perspective and I really like that approach. No, thank you. I really appreciate that, Patrick. Um, you know, I think that's for for me and you know, going all the way back again, I saw a lot of interesting arbitrage opportunities uh, coming from the non-traditional background. Um, you start to to see things that you love about the industry, and also things that you think you can you know change could and could be better. Um, and a couple of things that I saw, um, you know, were that. Every private equity shop um, structures deals in the same way, and they also think about their post-close strategy in the same way. They also uh, go through the acquisition process in the same way with the CEO. It's kind of the same song and dance, and it works really well, um, you know, for many companies. Um, but I found that there's this segment of kind of outlier companies um, and an outlier CEOs who are looking for something a little bit different. Um, so we cater more towards the CEO, and I think it wins a lot of trust over, um, you know, to them. We always ask, you know, what can we do for you? And they always look at us um, a little stunned. And they say, well, what? You're asking us? You're you're pitching us on you? This is very different. And they like that. It, it builds trust, but it's also very genuine because we really want to know um, because post-close, our goal isn't to put, you know, at six plus turns of leverage on a company, you know, we really stay between, you know, that three to four range at the very max and really organically grow this company post-close and create a very sustainable growth strategy um, with, a, with an, a surrounding of operating partners. So they could be retired CEOs, um, current CEOs, current C-suite. And, you know, we, we give them board positions, of course, and and they help us and, and guide us, um, you know, through their Rolodexes, through their experiences um, to help take the company to the next level. Um, the other thing that we do that was a little bit different. Um, so typically in private equity, um, it's usually 100% buyout. You're not, you don't always see rollover. And if you do, it's more for kind of just a transitionary period, or you're seeing like the, the CEO, um, you know, basically has kind of a, a final exit strategy in mind. Um, but we're actually, you know, really going for like 20 plus percent in some cases. The, the more the merrier is what we say. We want the CEOs to really believe in their company and believe in that strategy post-close and, and kind of, um, you know, feel like this is a partnership and not buyout, if that makes sense. Um, is, it, yeah, is, it, is it fair to say in that person, you're not necessarily looking for CEOs that want to exit. You're looking for CEOs that are, are at that inflection point where, they're 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 too big to be small, but they're too small to be enterprise, and they want to they want to stick around. One hundred percent. It's very okay. counterintuitive. Yeah, but yes. Okay, fantastic. I'm I'm sorry. I, I I slowed your roll. Please continue. No, no, no. This is fantastic. I'm I'm glad you clarified actually because it's very counterintuitive. Um, sure. that's probably one of the biggest things that we do. Um, that, that's a bit different. Um, I would say from a post close and also from kind of a diligence perspective, we're really making friends with the CEO. We're flying there um, multiple times. 
really um, getting kind of a sound um, look at their company um, and, and really just making sure that they like us as much as we like them, because this is something that, you know, you're in bed with, with the CEO for, you know, five plus years. Um, and it keeps getting longer and longer as yeah. the trends go on. Um, so it's very important. Another thing that we do, which is a bit atypical, um, is we source all of our own deals. So it's not to say that we don't look at bank led deals. We, we do look at them. Um, but I would say that 98 percent of deals um, and, and deals that we've done in the past, deals that are currently in our pipeline, deals we're under LOI with, they come from an algorithmic deal strategy. There are three algorithmic deal strategies that we've actually um, come up with. Um, I used to work for a hedge fund. And you know, for me, I developed um, uh, these different uh, methodologies. Um, I'm actually, uh, uh, unbeknownst to most people, I'm, I'm a coder. I, um, I used to and still do code in about six different languages um, and am able to kind of parlay that public market experience that I had when I was at Morgan Stanley and at my hedge fund um, into more of the private equity world. So we have these algorithms that find us companies. Um, and if I uh, if I go too deep, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to kill you if I uh, told you all of the um, algorithmic uh, deal secrets. Um, but I would say that for the most part, um, you know, it's been incredibly successful. Where we're finding exactly what we're looking for from an EBITDA perspective, from a sector perspective, we're able to reach out to these CEOs who don't even necessarily know that they want to sell their company yet, um, and then we're able to pitch our story organically or what we actually would like to do and then post-close, um, you know, execute on it. So it's, it's very um, atypical because typically private equity, you know, they do bank-led deals and they don't have their own sourcing teams. So when you're doing that, you're, you're actually finding, you're preempting, the, you know, other p- perspective acquirers because you're, you're approaching these people probably early in the stage where they don't even realize they're going out yet. And so forth. And one of the things that comes across in our conversations before is it's a thing that we really believe over at Rubicon and now with Liberty is this commitment to service, to serving our clients. And you got, you're bringing that in spades because you're approaching the CEO saying, you know, literally, how can we serve you? And then it's not just some big, you know, check that they're going to get, that there's more to it. And I think that gives it what, what resonates is a saying that I, that I've come across that I think comes with Ouroboros too. And I tell me if this, you know, connects with you, but you know, a lot of these CEOs are going to be saying, you know what, I don't care how much, you know, until I know how much you care. And I think that that you're already with that attitude of service, you're already coming in that way. 100%, you know, and I think that, I mean, the CEOs um, usually all love us because of this. And at first they think we're being disingenuous because they're like, my goodness, this is everything that I have ever wanted and could, you know, ask for. And then they get to know us and they go, oh my God, this is like unbelievable. And what's nice is that you're developing just a really organic partnership and, mm-hmm. you know, they're telling you what they actually need, um, which is opposed to just kind of giving you lip service um, and then post close, you're stuck with a bit of a mess. And and so the LPs love it too, because we tend to get, you know, much more of a, a quality opportunity, um, you know, and, and, and I would say it's one where the LPs, you know, come to us and it's just, um, it, they have usually a purpose um, for why they want to be in the deal. They've either done a transaction that's similar, um, they have a buy and build strategy um, or, you know, a family and the family office segments, you know, has made their money in a similar way. Um, so it's, that's the best, um, of course, because they really, truly understand what it means to be a part of this company. So, and, you know, I'd say that we tend to have very fair valuation 
valuations. We are definitely not value investors and we're certainly not, you know, paying a premium. I would say that everyone walks away, you know, from a transaction feeling that this has been a fair, uh, a fair multiple, um, which is really, you know, how, how it should be done. No one should feel robbed on either side of the table. So. I kind of look at it as you've got the multiple figures out there and people may have those, you know, in their head, but really it's going to be the long run on where are we going to bring this, you know, from point A to point B, an approach that you guys have is you are not financially re-engineering or trying to grow profits by cutting expenses. You focus on an area that's near and dear to my heart, which is marketing. You are improving marketing and, and the sales production and that. And so we could talk about that in one uh, aspect. And I'm just wondering, as you come on board with this, with the management team and they brought you in and now you're together, tell me about any epiphanies that you've witnessed them have where they're sitting down saying, okay, I trust you, show, show us what to do. You lay out the approach and you just, you can visually see them with the light bulbs going off. Give us some of those examples if you could. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're working um, on on uh, closing a franchisor right now, and it's been really interesting um, because we're seeing um, a CEO who has built this company just um, absolutely organically, and you know, he has seen decades of iteration here, and it's just his knowledge is just so incredible to us, and we're able to you know kind of share the experience of you know the the old and the new and. You just kind of see these light bulbs, you know, flickering, you know, going, oh my gosh, this is what the next iteration of my company could be like. Um, but I, you know, I don't know that I have the energy at this point to do that, but I still really want to be a part of this. Um, and this is one of the rare cases where we are bringing on a new CEO, um, but really it's going to be kind of a collaboration, you know, post-close. And you kind of see the new CEO and you see um, the founder, you know, kind of sitting there and they have just these incredible ideas for what this concept could be, um, but also maintaining um, the, the authenticity um, and this, this kind of retro-modern approach um, of... Exactly, 100%. And I think that that is just, it's so special to kind of see the old and the new come together. Um, It happened again um, on another um, transaction um, that we worked on um, in in the workwear space, you know, where we're sitting there and you know, going, my gosh, this is this is already a multinational company. Um, but let's start to kind of hone in on, on specific sectors um, that maybe could be complementary, you know. And, and the CEO is just going, well, we tried this and this didn't work. We tried this and that didn't work. But maybe if we did this way, this could work. And then we're bringing in our ops talent who are like, well, I did this with my last company. Maybe we could try this. And just seeing this think tank come together and. I personally have learned just a tremendous amount. And what I love most about private equity is that you're never done learning. It's one of those uh, those, those industries where you have to just be prepared to always be humble um, because you are never, ever going to be a master at this craft. Well, I, I, I kind of look at it as if you're in construction and you just have your head down, you're banging on a nail, you know, all day long. And you just, you know, you can get down on yourself saying, I'm just doing this little thing. But then you step back at the end of the day and there's something larger than when you started. And I could just see the same thing with you guys where it's just not another deal. We, we're building the we're building something from nothing, but there's something there, but it, even more. So that's got to be gratifying. And, and, you know, as we go through that, as I mentioned in, in the opening, you were in the healthcare 
consumer distribution. You know, you're in a lot of different sectors, okay? And so they could, but they could spread you out a bit. But, you know, give us an idea about, you know, where you are in terms of what's an ideal client for you or ideal targeting. Explain what that is, because I think anybody that's listening that has a mid-market company, they're already getting a little bit, you know, interested. <laughs> Thank you, Noah. Absolutely. Um, so I would say, you know, ideal clients is, um, you know, CEO who, uh, you know, basically built this company. Um, typically, if there's some family edge too, we love that. We love, you know, multi-generational families. We love family businesses. I myself came from a family business background. So I certainly um, empathize and, and know what it takes. Um, so family, family business, you know, CEOs, um, you know, organic creating uh, the company, you know, typically, you know, they've been doing this for, you know, 10 plus years, um, you know, and a CEO who's looking to stay on and really taking another bite of the apple um, and is maybe looking to roll, call it 15, 20% equity. Um, and also, as you mentioned, within the healthcare consumer and manufacturing and distribution spaces, uh, we are completely geographically agnostic. So we will look all over the world for interesting opportunities. Um, and I would also say that we're looking, um, you know, mainly for for strategies that, you know, can be, you know, a three plus year um, sort of uh, hold, buy and build strategies, and just in general, um, you know, really complement our operating partners' uh, skills too. So we're coming in from that angle. Okay, and, and in terms of uh, value size, what kind of what kind yes. of range are we looking at? Uh, five million EBITDA and above. Five million EBITDA and above. Okay, excellent. One of the things that's happened with that particular class of business has helped the transactions uh, move a lot more uh, efficiently is how risk has been able to be transferred away from the parties so that they, the deals can actually go forward without, you know, the big downside. And what I'm talking about with that is there's an insurance program called Reps and Warranties, which has been in that middle market space even more so than ever in the last five years. And, you know, it's done wonders for the middle market, uh, not just the billion dollar, but down. But don't take my word for it. Samantha, good, bad, or indifferent, what experiences have you had with rep and warranty on your deals? Well, we we love reps and warranties. I mean, I would say that the ideal candidate, at least from our perspective for reps and warranties, are deals that a little bit bigger. Um, you know, the reps and warranties are tough for smaller deals, I yep. would say, just because, you know, it's expensive. Um, but I would say that when you're doing bigger deals, it's almost a must. Um, and especially if there's any sort of risk, um, anything that, you know, has any sort of, you know, um, pre-close, post-close uh, risk that you're kind of identifying, you know, anything distressed um, that has kind of that economies of scale already should certainly have reps and warranties insurance. Um, and I would say that, you know, in general, especially in this really frothy market, it's really important to, to, to definitely consider it, um, you know, when you're uh, buying out a company. Yeah, I would say that one of the great things about the platform for this podcast is also to get the word out that Revs and Warranties was originally the prime domain for $100 million plus transaction risks. And now that has gone down market to where, you know, transactions in the, you know, $25 million valuation uh, realm can be eligible. There are costs associated, which is why now there's a brand new program out there for the micro market and it's called TLPE. And it ensures deals from half a million transaction value to 10 million, 
which is a little bit below Ouroboros' threshold. However, it could be for add-ons. So it's one thing out there for the guests to consider is that just because you're not a $50 million you know, transaction, there may still be alternatives out there. So I appreciate you know, your comments on this. And it's great to see I've seen a consistent response here where, and it's good for the insurance industry that we actually have a tool that is helpful as opposed to a hindrance for deals happening. Now, Samantha, I'm a father of two teenage daughters, so I'm keenly aware of what's happening with you know, uh, women in the presence of finance sectors and so forth. And I, I really wanted to ask you this because you also have a unique perspective as a background of a non-finance person who came from the art sector. You know, in your background, as you came in, you I, from the service, it looks like you had no hindrance whatsoever in or barrier to entry getting in as, as a woman into the finance world. But share with me your thoughts, because I believe still that women are underrepresented in, in finance and in M&A. And I, I'd like your insights on this, because you bring something to the table that the standard, you know, profile doesn't bring. But talk to me on that on that area. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you, Patrick. You know, I think that um, it's, I, I was acutely aware of it, just, you know, switching industries, um, you know, at, at a young age. Um, and you're aware of it, I think, when you're at the beginning of your career. And then as you uh, mature and you build your toolkit, as I like to say, where, you know, you have more and more skills, whether it be kind of um, the, the front ends, um, you know, biz dev to the to the uh, modeling skills, um, to, to doing IR, to doing admin stuff. And you kind of get that suite of ability to just kind of wear all of these different hats. Um, you kind of get so busy, you, you kind of forget, um, you know, that you're a woman, honestly, because it's such a male dominated industry. and. When I was younger, I was much more aware of it and it was a little bit stifling to me. Um, and I, you know, I, I came off a little uh, um, awkward, um, you know, at times, but then kind of as you mature and as you, um, you know, build confidence, um, you think of yourself just as a person. And that makes it just um, from kind of a, a, an aura standpoint, um, just more palatable, you know, when you're in a room at a conference and, and whatnot, you just don't think of gender anymore. And you're more kind of thinking of, um, you know, oh, how can we collaborate on this and partnership? And I think a lot of that does come from the fact that, you know, uh, so many males are in this industry um, that you just kind of have to shut it off at some point. And everyone else is aware you're a woman, but you aren't. Um, and I think that that really is truly an advantage um, because a lot of women tend to have a chip on their shoulder, you know, because they're like, huh, well, I'm a woman in this industry. And I used to be like that too. And then, you know, you get older and, um, you know, it, it doesn't serve you, um, very well. And, you know, I think it is changing, um, slowly, um, you know, kind of as, as we go into things, but I think that, um, uh, the industry is just really, it's a grueling industry. Um, you know, and it's one where, um, you know, you kind of, uh, as you get older, it, it weeds everybody out, men and women, um, and they go into to different segments. So. Okay. Yeah. I, I just think that as, as you know, the numbers and your, your view and numbers and love of numbers and so forth transcended, <laughs> you know, the, the barriers that would have been there with finance and, and art and so forth. I, I think just in, in the nature of, of mergers and acquisitions is just, if you've got a better idea, the world's going to beat a path to your door. And I mean, coming from Silicon Valley, it didn't matter where you come from. 
Uh, you do not have to be a blue blood or someone that's in the club in Silicon Valley to do very, very well. And that is, you know, infectious out there. And I think it's the same thing. And what's nice is, uh, you know, money is going to go where success is. And, and so that's, that's one thing that's, you know, uh, you, you can't deny it. It's just great seeing, you know, uh, professionals like yourself out there serving it, you know, while you didn't intend to be, you are role models for the, the next generation coming on through. And I really, really do appreciate that. I, I agree. And thank you. Yeah. So, you know, Samantha, we're coming up on 2022 and, you know, this 2021 blinked right by. Uh, the pandemic is less of an issue now. It's not gone, but it, you know, we've, we've adapted. What trends do you see going forward, either in, in the middle market or any of the sectors that you're in? Because you, you are so also in the entry level in the consumer vertical. So talk to that if you could. Absolutely. Um, I think you're seeing gigantic paradigm shifts in almost every industry, honestly. Um, and COVID um, has really sped up um, these trends. And you're seeing it especially in the consumer sector where um, already we're kind of seeing the death of brick and mortar, if you will, and more of these experiential concepts coming up and um, more um, uh, e-commerce. And I mean, it just completely um, was ravaged in COVID and um, became much more um, uh, cyberspace driven, less brick and mortar, even more experiential um, just to kind of get the, the client in the door to buy the product. You know, I think that you're really seeing the trends to in healthcare and um, telemedicine and no longer needing uh, to go to your specific doctor, but kind of having more of this fragmented uh, branch out of going to an urgent care or having the televisit, televisit online first to just kind of determine whether or not um, you should, you know, go to um, your primary or, you know, be triaged somewhere else. Um, and in manufacturing and distribution, you're seeing just massive supply chain disruptions right now. And everybody, you know, you don't even have to be um, in the sector uh, to know what's going on when you go into CVS and you can't find Advil. Um, it's really striking, um, you know, and it's going to probably go on for another six months to a year as things normalize. Um, but I'd say a big overarching trend I'm seeing um, within uh, private equity and in white collar jobs is this work from home situation. Um, it doesn't seem to be going away. It seems to actually be becoming more of a hybrid situation where maybe you go into the office two to three days a week. And then, you know, the rest of the time, you know, you're at home or maybe you're working remotely permanently, you know, in a different uh, area of the country or, or a different um, area altogether. It's, it's really fascinating. And I think that it's going to create um, a really ferocious talent pool um, where suddenly you don't have to move to one of these cities. You can be top talent, you know, working from, you know, Asia or working from, you know, Texas if, if you're based in Boston. So it's it's really striking, um, you know, what's happened. And I think it's just going to continue to, to increase within the next year. And I didn't want to bring my own personal life into these interviews and everything. This is about you, but I can tell you, as, 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 somebody who had, as, as somebody who had to wait seven weeks for a replacement refrigerator when ours died, yeah, those, those you know, supply chain things are going to be something going in. I, I also agree with you. I, th I think that not only in this, but in mergers and acquisitions, as more innovations happen, as more collaborations happen, mergers and acquisitions are only going to continue at this pace because of demographics as well, because you've got... CEOs that want to make a final change, whether it's a an exit or 
it's either now or never we've got to get up and change, change what we're doing. And they're looking to organizations like Ouroboros to do that. And so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, but it, it, but things are all positive, which I like, which, which is always fun. Samantha, how can our audience members find you? Um, via my email, um, Patrick, you're more than welcome to, to share my email, um, to, to share the website, um, you know, would absolutely love to connect. We're, we're in the business. It's a relationship business. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me, um, for, for any purpose. It's just always nice to, to make new contacts in the industry and, um, find new ways to, to partner and to work together either now or in the future. We'll have everything in the show notes, so we'll have that all set. Well, Samantha Ori from the Ouroboros Group, thanks so much for being us. This has just been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. Such a pleasure. 